And so you want to make sure that you are the innovator, the disruptor in the industry a little bit. So that's so you have to do it just to stay alive, I think, because if you are, you know, have the, if your neighbors over there, talk, if you want, my client is talking to their neighbor over their fence, which they may not have a fence about, hey, my accountant just told me of this great tax planning thing and this great change in my investments. And yeah. oh, we're doing this whole Roth conversion strategy, blah, blah, blah. And the guy's like, gosh, my accountant is just doing a tax return. You know, what do you think? That guy might ask for my number. Um, so it's really, if you're not doing it, you're losing out. And so it's not just the extra revenue that comes from offering more services it's the do you want to stay alive relationship be there in five years right and so what what i have chosen to do is to again either myself or strategic partnerships generally people are coming in as a tax client first um that's what i'm Welcome to AFO Wealth Management Forward, a podcast about finance, accounting, technology, and entrepreneurship. We apply our decades worth of experience and insight into what makes businesses work so we can help others grow both personally and professionally. In this ever-evolving marketplace, we help accounting firms and financial advisors grow their practice through the adoption of holistic wealth management services. Learn from industry leaders and subject matter experts to unlock the secrets of their success a podcast that shows people and companies the transformative power of technology so they don't fear it, but instead harness it. Don't fight the robots, team up with them. And here are your hosts, Rory Henry, Director of Business Development and CEO Rob Santos of Arrowroot Family Office. All right. Hello, everyone. We are again joined by Managing Director and Partner here at Arrowroot Family Office, Diane Young. Diane, how are we doing today? I am doing super fantastic. Thank you, Rory. Yes, Diane. And you also, because we're going to talk about women in finances, you actually authored a book, Owning Your Financial Success, correct? That is correct. All right. Well, we have another author here, and she uh, is also a, a CPA who has her MBA, and she's the CEO of Charter Accounting and Tax Services. She's also a speaker, a podcast host, and a money expert. Uh, so without further ado, let me introduce our esteemed guest, Deborah Daniel, Deborah, welcome to the show. Hey, Rory, I'm glad to be here. I'm glad, you know, this is my favorite conversation. Women, money, business. <laughs> Women, money, I business. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So let's get started out here. We always ask uh, our guests to kind of give a, a brief background on yourself. Uh, and, you know, who is Deborah Daniel for our audience here? Well, I mean, it's it's a, it's a three decade story, but um, <laughs> I'll try to give you the short version. But literally, I've owned a business basically my entire career. I, I had very, I mean, I finished my MBA. Well, actually dial it back. I graduated from college. I started working for a developer here in town. Some people are familiar with him. John Portman It was a super awesome, interesting job was in the whole restructuring that he had going on. I finished my MBA and I got recruited away to work for another, like a New York stock exchange company. I don't even know if they're around anymore. First data, first financial, you know, one of six analysts. This was super cool. I was only in my mid twenties. I absolutely hated it. And this was, I don't even want to tell you how old I am, but let's dial it back to the internet days. Um, There wasn't an internet to Google things or to, you know, watch Netflix when people weren't watching. It was boring. I mean, I'm the kind of person, I mean, and, you know, I've come across a lot of people, you can, you know, work me to death, but don't bore me to death. So I started my entrepreneurial journey a little bit earlier than most people. I was only, I was newly married. Um, I just had finished my MBA. So I really never even used my MBA in corporate. And I um, 
was in my mid twenties. Right. And so I knew I wanted to own a business at some point. I was a CPA. I had that training and my husband and I looked at my new husband, very new husband. He's like, wait a minute, you had a job. Um, I, um, we looked at buying a blimpy. We looked at some other franchises, but we were 25, 26 years old. I mean, we didn't have a quarter of a million dollars to buy a franchise or whatever. So literally I hung up a sign in a retail location, kind of near, um, where we lived income taxes. Um, and I did, a season of a lot of little easy tax returns. And then I went into an acquisition phase because we basically, there was nothing to do after April 15th. So I bought a couple of small practices over the first four or five years, you know, 50,000 in revenue, 150,000 in revenue, you know, not any one really that big and literally made zero the first five years because I was back in those days, you didn't have bank financing to buy, um, which I help clients with a lot now. How do you build your business? How do you finance your business? Well, 30 years ago, there, you know, a woman, in her 20s, you know, with very little assets out, you know, was, you know, newly married, um, was not getting a bank loan to buy a business or whatever. So the first five years, we basically just um, paid old owners, because that's the way the financing happened. And, you know, from there, we've just been doing taxes for like 30 years, QuickBooks, we do everything business related, I help them, you know, what kind of structure should you have. Um, and, and then what I think is really cool about my business, and I think other accountants should be looking for it, is, you know, all the years, Years, all the advisors were like, hey, let's partner up and work on your account, your clients, and we'll refer back and forth. Well, the reality is they were not referring back and yeah. forth very often. And their fees, you know, they would sit you know, their fees were 10,000, 20,000, 50,000, and we might get a four or $500 tax return. Right. <laughs> it didn't feel right to me. I mean, this, so, is, our, this is our program and model. <laughs> we're trying to... I was like, wait a minute, wait a minute. I am probably one of, I mean, I have an MBA in finance. Yeah. I have all this financial education. Advisors that are not, you know, partners with me are sending my clients back to me to ask if their advice is good and should they do it and only get your CPA to sign off on it. Yeah. I'm like, wait a minute. I'm not even charging my clients because I just like my client, you know, to even give them this advice. And here the advisor is making 10, 20, 30 times more yeah. from my client than I am. Yeah. And I'm so, the one that's actually the gatekeeper yeah. for the sale. Does I mean, I always mean? say it's a historic, it's a lopsided <laughs> model. Like that referral model is such a lopsided model in favor of the financial advisor. <laughs> Exactly, exactly. Because the reality is they probably have to be successful four, five, six, seven, eight accountants that are so why are they choosing me of the other seven or eight, you know, people? Right. It just it just doesn't make sense. And well, the CPA is the most trusted of all the advice. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, and, and there's all kinds of studies about that. I mean, I've noticed, I mean, just in working with my clients that you know, they'll often make a decision after us only having one meeting. I hear from financial advisors that are more just sales oriented or product oriented, yeah. not solutions oriented like I am. Um, and I'm not saying anything bad about them, but they're not coming from the place of here's your whole plan. This is your taxes. This is your goals. This is everything. And we're then going out and figuring out what are the things to match it. They're selling something and then trying to make it match the client. And that's fine. And that's a model that's worked for that for a long well, it time. works because they make a ton of money doing that as exactly, opposed to a fiduciary exactly. model like our I mean, firm. I think they're doing, I mean, surely they're doing stuff in the right interest of the clients, I hope, but it's just, most of those people have to meet with their clients five, six, seven, eight times to make them, to come up with a decision, right? To actually purchase something. My folks are filling out applications on the first or second visit because we already are so in tune. We already have dated for so long that we're ready to put a ring on it. You know, when we sit down oh, to talk about you. it. 
You know, it's it's just a different it's just a different model. It's a different place. And I say this to my clients, and I don't mean this in a bad way, but I if I give you a good if I give you a good concept, if I give you a good solution, one, I'm not captive anywhere. I have many many sources of where I find things for clients. I'm I'm still gonna own my building. I'm still gonna have my great accounting firm. I'm not. Gonna, I mean, my kids are still gonna go to private school, and their colleges are paid for. Versus, I mean, you know, so I want you to use my advice, but I'm not, my lifestyle doesn't change if you don't do this versus someone that the only thing they do, I mean, the only thing they do is sell financial products. They have to keep getting you to buy something, right? I mean, it's a different motivation. Um, I'm not saying that's bad. Everybody's got to make money for themselves, but truly it is a little bit of a different motivation when it's ancillary instead of primary. Does that make right. sense? And that's why, yeah, that's why I think our models, especially for CPAs out there and the code of ethics fits well with the fiduciary model and the RIA, because we have to put the best interest of the client first, instead of working with broker dealers who work off commission and, and work off the suitability standard. And, you know, we align well with that CPA who has, is that trusted advisor and they can work in, you know, in, in tandem with a financial advisor, an RIA to make sure that they're putting the best interest of the client first with those investments. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. All right. Well, let's, let's, I mean, you know, I'm always interested in what motivated you to, to go into becoming a money expert uh, here, you know, because you have this great CPA practice, but you, it seems like you have a real passion for helping coach clients. You have, uh, I, I know, uh, coaching programs uh, that you work with your clients. You have um, uh, mastermind groups and, and seminars and, and you're writing books. So, you know, what, uh, what motivates you to kind of become a coach and a, and a thought leader? Here? I kid about this sometimes. I, I kid about this, but it's, I, I, I say money is my love language. I mean, I just <laughs> really love everything about, I mean, it makes sense to me. I mean, I grew up again, you've kind of already figured if you do the math and when I'm talking about when I was, uh, I mean, I grew up kind of in the seventies, you know, in, yeah. um, people were playing house. I I wasn't into that. I wanted to play business even back then. I mean, I just, I mean, we were playing office. I was like, here, let me play on this typewriter or whatever. And I didn't want to be the secretary. I wanted to be the boss, right? Which was not the model, you know, from the TV shows and things we were seeing in the seventies and eighties. Right. Um, So I've always been interested in it. I think it also has a little bit to do with, I mean, we all have a money story. We all have um, attitudes about money. Some even say that maybe even in utero, I mean, you kind of have genetic you know, something to do with money, but it's, um, it it just makes sense to me. Right. I mean, and I, and I really feel empowered by it, but also I think it's because I had grandparents that grew up in the depression and you cannot be around people that lived through something like that without having a money story. right? Right. So I always was very, one motivated my parents my grandparents were very blue collar I mean my dad went to college didn't quite finish his degree I was the first person in my family to ever finish my college degree and I have a master's degree most of my cousins still never did I mean I think my sister and I are the only one out of about 15 cousins that actually finished college I think I have one cousin that maybe is a nurse but um it's just it was always so important to me to be seeking after knowledge and knowledge that that related to money, not just for me, because there's all kinds of statistics, especially for women, that as we prosper, not only do our families prosper, but our communities prosper as well. And so just, it, it was so much more to me than than just the money side of the CPA. Honestly, the only reason I'm a CPA is because it was the easiest thing for me to sell when I needed, when I wanted to open a business. I was trained to do that. I mean, I knew how to do it. I could do a tax return. Um, that's really what got me started down this path. But then as I have 
worked with clients for three decades. There's such a lack of knowledge. There's such a shame about knowledge. There's just such a a black cloud over money in general that just trying to change that will change everybody's money situation. Can you describe how your mastermind groups work and what that's like? Oh, sure. We've got, I've got so many different things. The mastermind primarily focuses, I mean, cause my, um, mantra is make more, keep more, grow more money. So I meet you wherever you are in the money process, because obviously I can't help you build generational wealth, which is my goal for people. I want the next generation to be better off than this generation. And obviously then that means they are impacting more people, but you can't do that if they don't have enough money in the bucket to start with. Then the keep more is kind of the more traditional accounting part where we close the bucket up, we close the leaks and, you know, and taxes being one of the biggest one, literally other than housing probably, or sometimes the other way around. Um, and then if we, and so we kind of work through that whole process in the mastermind. And so we're primarily, I, my target market, my avatar, if you want to say, is really business owners. Because the reality is, I don't think, and I don't take offense, anybody that's a W-2 employee, I don't think you can W-2 yourself to wealth. To wealth. It's, it's almost impossible. Because if you can't be in control of the inflow, it's very hard to be in control of the outflow and the growth of that wealth, right? Um, I, I use the example all the time. Like if if I took my daughter when she, now she's in college, but when I took her to the orthodontist and they said, "Hey, at least needs braces," and that's going to be eighty five hundred dollars or whatever astronomical amount it was back then, um, I couldn't go back to the office and say, "Hey, boss, at least needs braces. I need an eighty five hundred dollar raise." They'd be like, "Get back to your cubicle and do your thing." And um, but I, as a business owner, because I still treat my I'm a financial professional. I am a CBA. I am a, a professional, but it is a business, right? I've always treated it like a business. And so then I just figure out, okay, who needs either more of what I have? Do I find a new client? Do I come up with another product that other people might want to bundle together? And so that's what we work on in the mastermind is kind of how I have run my business for 30 years. And I kind of run it like a peer-to-peer um, kind of, so usually 10 to 12 people, same 10 to 12 people. And I have multiple groups of this going. Um, get together once a month and, you know, basically talk about what is their biggest business opportunity or obstacle. And then we let the other people in the group kind of, um, you know, mastermind together, you know, kind of like in the true tradition, you know, yeah. the Carnegie's and Rockefeller's and all that actually did masterminding back in the day. And then I kind of, as the 30 year entrepreneur, take a little bit of that 30,000 foot, um, view where I'm above the labyrinth and I can kind of see the maze and say, yeah, for you, that might work. Or, you know, we kind of connect the dots a little bit. Um, and that's kind of the basis of it, but it goes off on all kinds of tangents because the yeah. reality is money and business is the same for everybody. And we all have team issues. We all have, what yeah, should I invest yeah. in issues? You know, what are you doing for marketing? A lot, I'll tell you what's come up over the past year or year and a half, a lot is team. And how do you get people to work for you, either contractors or employees? I mean, and that's across every industry. That's not just, I mean, every industry. I mean, it's not just when you go to the restaurant and they don't have enough servers for you. Right. It's not, I mean, every industry is struggling with employees and how to keep them motivated and how to, how to compensate them in a way that's going to keep them motivated. I mean, you know, that's not hundred percent money, but it is kind of, because I know I just hired a new person and I was told by the recruiter that people wanted more to stay at home. I mean, more to come into the office and I'm just, not going to have a million people staying at home. That's just not my business model. Um, and the starting pay was about 25% more than the last person I hired pre-pandemic, which is uh, unbelievable to me because you can't go to your clients and say, hey, <laughs> guess what? 
Your tax return is 25% more this year. Because Deborah right. doesn't want to do a whole bunch more tax returns so that she can keep her income the same. You know, um, yeah. so we talk all about that. But money is, everything I do is from the voice of money. I mean, I was in a mastermind for several years before I started leading one myself. And people want to throw out all these great ideas of things they're going to do. And I was kind of like, everybody would look at me because they knew I was about to say, now, how are you going to monetize that idea? Because everybody has a great a bunch of ideas yeah. and things that they want to run in their business, but they're not monetizable. I mean, you know, I would love to give everybody, you know, I mean, I can't even think of some one person wanted to be a heart centered and, and I love this heart centered. Um, she wanted to bring heart into the corporate environment. And I get that. But most corporations are you're going to have to show them the monetary benefit to them of how that's going to work out. And most people don't look at it from that perspective. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, you are monetizing this mastermind group because you oh, are yeah. getting your clients, right? And instead of doing a one-on-one office hours with each of those clients, you can then have a mastermind. They all have the same issues. You can answer those uh, in one session together. So you're really getting a return on that investment rather through time. Yeah, there's there's a charge for um, I, I, everything I do. <laughs> but the mastermind has a monthly charge there. And I mean, I have a lot of different ways to... The thing is, you've got to let people meet people where they are in the customer journey. So somebody could just be a tax return client or they could be one of my VIPs, which are part of the mastermind, which maybe we do their books. Maybe we do financial planning for them. To me, if you're at the top of the food chain, you get everything that's underneath. Right. You see what I'm saying? I mean, so if you're my VIP, you're getting everything that we do and more access to me versus, and then people can go a la carte as much as they want to. And then we all, we have a lot of different ways that people can, can access us. We like to do our things in packages instead of just, people can just buy a tax return, but I like to bundle the tax return with maybe some audit protection with maybe an, a t- financial planning meeting or with a um, tax planning meeting, because the reality is if we try to call them in October, November, December, you know, this, they're going to be like, I'm busy. I don't have time. But if they've already paid for it, they will actually use it. But now I'm not saying that hundred percent of them do. I mean, I also teach my clients and I like to do it myself. I call it the, the fitness center model. People are paying. We are here. If you want to take advantage of it, we're here. But if you don't pay for, take advantage of all the things that you have bundled into this thing, um, you know, that's, you know, you, you sometimes win if everybody's paying for the master. I mean, if everybody's paying for, say, my group call that I do, because there's a lot of different things. I mean, like I have one that's just for people, just for, no, I don't mean people, just for non-business owners, because they just want to talk about their money issues. Well, my my business owners also get to participate in that call as well. Um, one thing that I do find, and I don't know if you guys have found this as well, is that for a business to be strong and be you know, financially viable, the personal finances have to be in order. And I think that's where people make a mistake. A lot of the time it's mutually exclusive. You mm-hmm. cannot have a super strong business if you're building it on, you know, basically quicksand personal finances. I mean, I do like people to keep their business and their personal finances separate because I mean, you don't want to be tying that up all the time, but it won't work. If you're a mess personally, you're not going to be able to run a business. I mean, you're right. just not. it doesn't work. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Uh, I mean, you have those, uh, so those tech CEOs and those, those uh, visionaries that yeah, that may not know the numbers and they just have people that do that for them. Uh, well, they don't but have for- to know the numbers, but you can't be a person that has a 400 credit score and doesn't pay right. their bills on time and doesn't even have any idea what's going on in their personal finances 
and be able to have a business. You're generally not going to be successful business owners. <laughs> yeah, you just can't. I mean, because you just don't have the one, I just don't think you have the discipline to do it. I mean, because it takes work to keep your credit clean. It takes work yeah. to build your finances up. It takes discipline. It takes an attitude of, hey, I don't need instant gratification. You know, that, I mean, it's any successful person that you see, you do not know their story. Every single one of them has struggled some way. I mean, every single one of them. We actually, <laughs> this is kind of a funny story, but our first business that we had, um, the first office that we had was in a retail center and it had to have a sign with individual letters. Well, 26 years old, I didn't really have any money. And so they <laughs> want to charge a ton for this sign. So my husband and I figured out a different way to do it. We got someone to make us these big plexiglass individual signs, fiberglass. I don't remember. Yeah. It was some kind of metal. I mean, not metal, but plasticky thing. So we did it. We put it on a board ourselves, income tax. We put that up at like six o'clock in the morning on a um, Sunday because the shopping center was really busy and we didn't want to get like run over while we were putting up the sign ourselves. And um, so we go and then it was happened to be the baptism of our, of our niece who we were the godparents of. And we came back and half the letters had fallen off and it said like ink me acts or something like that. I mean, that's like one of my worst stories, but everybody has like a story where like they were the ones on a Christmas Eve, you know, cleaning the bathroom right. of the office because everybody else <laughs> left or whatever. I mean, you have to be, I mean, nobody gets a successful business. I mean, it just doesn't happen. And not even the internet people. You're opening the doors, you're closing the doors, you know, and exactly. I still do it even, you know, with my practice and that it's just, it's your baby. It, it, it is. I, I kid my kids. I mean, they're in their twenties now, but of course I've run the business for 30 years. So obviously <laughs> I've had the business longer. I tell them all the time. I said, Hey, if I had to choose, if I was being held up and I had to choose between the business and you guys, I don't know. I'd have to think twice. A little bit. <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking about kids, because the stats show that many of our money habits and beliefs about money are mm -hmm. formed in our childhood. Uh, and I always like to ask, you know, our guests here, you know, how, how do you advise your clients and maybe, you know, on working with their kids, but also, you know, do you dive into their beliefs about money? Do you dive into, you know, it where are they? Yeah. Do you, Diane, maybe you'll agree with this. I sometimes get around and say the P in CPA stands for psychologist because people <laughs> will spill their guts on everything to you. I mean, for some reason, it's just like, you're like, I feel like I'm a psychologist. Well, and you have to be, you're really like a therapist. And um, I, if I can interject a quick story that just happened today, I had a the wife of the couple, the husband didn't come today. And she was so mad at him because he's being so cheap about everything, though they have, you know, a ton of money with us and that. And at the end, you know, he's not buying a new truck, even though he should get a new truck. He's, he's fussing around doing, doing the renovation in the kitchen. I mean, she is so mad. And I said, well, when you go home tonight, uh, tell him, ask, tell him that Diane wants to know how they want to distribute their money upon their death because clearly they're not going to spend it. So it's either going to go to the government or to nonprofits. And Diane just wants to know what our strategy is for giving our money away to the government and the things since you're not going to spend. And she, her eyes went like, what? And I'm like, yeah, just tell that to them. See if that gets them like, <laughs> Yeah, we'll buy that new truck now because I'm like, someone's going to get this money. Very true. People <laughs> do have, I mean, it, it, you know, there's so many stories about money. You know, you have to look at what was told to you as a child because it really does impact you. I mean, because even though it's been a long time since I've needed to run to the sale rack or buy, I mean, I still check out the sale rack. I still love having a good deal, right? And the, the reality is money there's energy to money. There just is. I mean, I don't get all woo-woo on you or whatever, but there is, 
an emotional contract that goes on in your mind about money and what you should be doing with it. And some people will never have enough money that they feel comfortable enough, but it's probably not even anything to do with their money. It's probably maybe something, maybe their parents got divorced when they were very young and they felt like they didn't have any security. I mean, you really have to delve into those issues a little bit, but it's really important for your kids. And I will tell you, I, I've seen it. I mean, I, I, I mean, even as a money expert, I feel like I made some mistakes with my children just because having come from a very much more modest background, of course you want your kids right, to have things to give them, that you yeah. didn't have, you know, get to be, do the, all the things that they wanted to do. But the reality is it's, it's the same thing. If you don't earn it, you don't value it as much. Right. I mean, right. I, I think my, I mean, we've, just they've got I love, I love no, but I don't think my kids will ever be as you know successful or leap ahead as much as my husband and I because we had to struggle for it right yeah. I mean and I see that in, in children all the time if if they didn't have money as children those are the ones that work really hard um but it's hard not to when you do have money be able to give it to your children be able to let them do the things be able to let them play all the sports that they want to but let them have the designer clothes that maybe you weren't able to have let them have a car when they turn 16 instead of no you go to i had to go to work and earn a thousand dollars before i got a car you know i mean and i had to pay a, back then my payment was only 140 dollars. i had to pay a hundred of the 140 dollars, and my parents paid the insurance for me my kids haven't paid for any of that stuff you know um and, and it's 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 tough because they're getting messaging especially now i think the messaging is so different for kids on money i heard an interesting um i don't remember what it was something on the radio yesterday it was somebody interviewing someone from japan and they were talking about how their attitudes about money are so different in asian countries than they yes. are here that they literally will talk to each other about how much money they make I mean, they're competitive about it, but they're open about it. Like, oh, I hear you're doing, you're working with this great company. How much money are you making there? I mean, people don't talk like that here in the United States. It's like, an, I mean, even your close friends, you're almost kind of holding it close to your chest. Like, I don't want them to know how much money I'm making because you don't want to either be embarrassed that you're making too much or too little. And, and who decides if it's too much or too little? The right. message we have is so crazy. Um, well, I had a real revelation on how women, right? you know, handle how they talk about money. Because when women get together... Um, you know, we're, we are generally talking about our families or relationships or things like that. And when men get together, they will talk about money. And I witnessed this a long time ago. My husband and I went to a bowling alley and next, the, the guys bowling next to us, we're talking about life insurance and the different types of life insurance and they're bowling. And I'm like, you would never see a group of women talking about that. And part of it's, it might be just because they don't have the knowledge, the interest or whatever. But I was like, you know, the men are exchanging this information. It might not be the correct information, but they were exchanging and building that confidence in there. And so one of the things I've always tried to do is to teach women how to talk about money and get over that dirty feel of money. I think women feel, you know, because I always jokingly say, I think I was an, an anthropology major. So study the brain and study the people and stuff like that. I always go back to what kind of girls ask for money? Bad girls. You know, and I'm like, so, you know, when we're negotiating for a raise or something like that, we're thinking, like, there's this, oh, I should just be rewarded for doing it. So anyway, I just find this fascinating how. Um, back to what the guy yesterday, the Asian person was saying, I think he was from Japan. He was saying in their country, they're much more open to talk about um, money, but they won't talk about sex or relationships or anything like that versus in our culture you know people are telling i mean you're sitting around the thanksgiving table with your extended family and it's almost 
people will say a dirty joke and everybody will laugh about it, but they won't talk about what they're investing in. That's right. kind of crazy, don't you think? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, we talked about it um, before the, the recording here. Um, about 80% of women leave their advisors when they, when they lose their husband. Um, so it is important to really for advisors out there on the wealth management side to, to really have that conversation uh, with the, uh, the women of the household to, to make sure that you're advising well, it's them. Not always, it's not, it, yeah. And it's not always the woman of the, ho- of the household because, you know, um, it can be generally I personally find um, that one person handles the money in the, in the relationship and another one kind of sits on the sidelines and that. But but you're right. In traditional models, it's the man, man quote unquote, making right. these big decisions in that. And um, if I can interject my information about just that as we see women making more money, I mean, I, I'm often sitting with a couple as, as all advisors are, we're either doing their tax return or we're talking about a investment strategy or whatever. And even if the woman is making more money than the man, she's still kind of looking to him to make the final decision. And I think that goes back to that financial confidence that I don't think women are feeling yet. I mean- Well, it's a study show, like I just looked this one up that only 39% of women are confident that they're gonna be successful in their retirement compared to 54% of men. And some of that's probably because we're not making as much, we're still only making 82 cents on the dollar and all that kind of stuff. But I think a lot of it is this mind trash that women have of, that the, most of the women I know, and Daniel, uh, Deborah, tell me if I'm, I'm wrong, feel like they missed a class. Like the men were taken aside, like at the end of high school, and like here, here here's the secret to success, son. And women weren't taken to that class, so they just always feel like they're they're not confident well, enough. They don't feel a little bit like that. I mean, I, I, just, just even in STEM period, like my daughter is actually uh, is is at a, is at Georgia Tech, is studying to be an engineer. But I remember in high school one time, she was always in like the highest level math and all that kind of stuff. She literally said something that a teacher said that kind of was like, well, that's really for boys or whatever. And I about fell out of my chair. I'm like, wait, is this 2017? What's going on here? Um, because I think the messaging in our society still is a little bit that that's more for men. I mean, we talked about this earlier when, I mean, I often am a top producer in any, you know, brokerage I've been with or whatever, just because I've got great clients that, you know, like to do what I tell them to do. But I'll, I mean, there'll be 25 people on the stage and I'll be one or two or three of the women. I mean, what's the deal on that? Why are we still, I mean, of course, dial it back to, you know, the early nineties. I mean, there were no women really doing, doing and, things and like that. And the number this. has not changed that much. And I mean, it's, it's, it, it's, it's like 15% in the financial services. If you count every woman that's taken a test, which means there's a lot of sales assistants, not lead us, you know, not lead advisors in that. Um, but, that but that's also a problem. I mean, this industry, I mean, and the pre-pandemic, I remember I was at an event and it was talking about the graying of our industry, that young people are not as much coming in to these financial, you know, careers as, as they have in the past. I mean, what are we going to do when the average advisors are like in their fifties? I mean, <laughs> That's well, 58 now. Yeah, yeah. it's uh, I'm right there with you. I'm not going to admit how high, but around there. <laughs> well, that's the average in the industry. And, uh, you know, it's uh, it, it is something that is incredibly challenging. And I'm um, I believe you're also are you on the FPA board or am I thinking of someone? No, I was thinking so. I'm on the FPA board here in Michigan, the Financial Planning Association. And we had an event where we could bring like they were bringing in all the students from the financial planning 
uh, classes in from all the various universities. And I look around and I was like, it was a 90% uh, male to 10% women. And I stood up and said, I'm hiring. And not one person came over to me. I was like, job opening, come on over. But it's, it's, I don't know what it is, why we can't seem to attract. Is it the, is it the same in the accounting? I know, yeah. let's go. There's let's a go. pipeline problem. Yeah. So it's hitting both professions. Yeah. So let's talk about this because we have our, our accounting audience here, Deborah. Mm-hmm. You know, you shifted your model. You're not just doing tax and accounting work. You're doing this coaching. Can you talk about, you know, the service offerings, you know, how many clients are you servicing? You know, what are you doing in regards to, you know, the financial planning aspect of it and how you're doing more of a holistic sure, offering sure. to clients? We try to, basically to me, anything that's money or financial related, either I am doing directly or I have strategic partnerships that we're doing. Because one, it's one practice preservation. I mean, you, it's kind of like the taxi to the Uber. Taxi's still getting some gigs, (laughs) but you know, the Uber's getting the most of them, right? And so you want to make sure that you are the innovator, the disruptor in the industry a little bit. So that's, so you have to do it just to stay alive, I think, because if you are, you know, have the, if your neighbor's over there, talk, if you want, my client is talking to their neighbor over their fence, which they may not have a fence about, hey, my accountant just told me of this great tax planning thing and this great change in my investments. And yeah. oh, we're doing this whole Roth conversion strategy, blah, blah, blah. And the guy's like, gosh, my accountant's just doing a tax return. You know, what do you think? That guy might ask for my number. Um, so it's really, if you're not doing it, you're losing out. And so it's not just the extra revenue that comes from offering more services it's the do you want to stay alive relationship be there in five years right and so what what i have chosen to do is to again either myself or strategic partnerships generally people are coming in as a tax client first um that's what i'm kind of known for more we do over a thousand people's returns we're actually closing on another practice this week that'll be another 400 returns which is exciting because all those people don't know about all the other things I do. (laughs) So I'm so excited. But um, so generally they'll come in through that. Then if they're a business owner, we do try to either ourselves or through some of our partners do their books and their bookkeeping um, because honestly, we can't help them if they bring us this crappy thing that their neighbor (laughs) or their their mother or their wife at night, you know, tried to, you know, put together. Um, Then we do look at, okay, now that we brought in, you know, we've got your stuff under control. We either help them through one, just financial coaching was really my favorite thing to do kind of more, you know, like how does money work kind of thing. That's really one of my favorite things to do. And that's for anybody that come, you know, that's a client of ours, the business owners, we do spend a lot of time on tax planning because Mm -hmm. it really can, it's the value. It really can change one, it frees up the money so that we could do some of the generational planning, right? The generational wealth planning, because the same person that didn't do tax planning as a person that did it, making the exact same income can literally have thousands, thousands with an S, you know, maybe tens of thousands, thousands. dollars, hundreds of thousands in tax, sometimes tax planning. Exactly. And so, so we try to really find where with the same bucket of money, can we do something differently that frees up some money so that you can invest in different things? Okay, now that we freed up that money, what are the different things that we can do? I mean, I have a real, stra- I mean, I have a real strategy. I feel like the most people that we can really help are the people that are either approaching a retirement and yeah. or in retirement, because people don't realize that the, the accumulation phase when we're in our 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 
it's not as important almost as that spend down phase because it makes a huge difference in how you're, you know, the taxability of what type of income you have and things like that. So we really put together, you know, we're doing a lot of education. I love the education part and people get access to that education as being part of our membership or whatever. Um, and then we do actually sell products. I mean, and we have, I mean, and so we're not captive in any way. I'm always trying to treat it as a buffet. Like here is, this is the, what you're trying to get to. This is your outcome. Here are five different paths to get to that outcome. You know how you pull up your GPS and it says, go this way, it's 47 minutes, this yeah. way, it's 45 minutes, this way, it's 46. All of these options are going to get you there. So which one are you happy with versus someone that I'm only selling equities, I'm only doing insurance, I'm only doing, you know, alternative investments, I'm, you know, um, yeah. I think is a really holistic way to take a look at what they're doing. Yeah. I mean, that's that our, sense? yeah, that's our model here, you know, the fiduciary making sure we put the best interest of the client first. I mean, there are different avenues. Technically you can have longer commute times. Right. Uh, but as long as the person knows, you know, the, uh, the risk and the reward in those different avenues, you know, um, they can make that decision properly. Diane, do you want to chime in here? Um, no, I think it's a great model in that. And I'm just always shocked that more accounting firms haven't embraced this. Well, the thing is, a lot of accountants don't feel like they can sell things to clients. Right. I mean, they just they feel like it's not professional. But even your doctor is selling stuff. <laughs> to you. Is it not professional when he tries to sell you, you know, a supplement or tries to yeah. sell you some other thing to do? I mean, it, it it is a business, and as long as you're helping people, they have no problem with you getting right. paid. You know, and most things, as you know, financial things are not coming out of the clients. They're not writing you a check. They're being paid by the um, investments themselves, right? So yeah. did you set up an RIA to do this? We've done it a couple different ways over the years. I mean, so in Georgia, you can participate in, um, you can do um, participate so money under management stuff if you have already a relationship. Like I couldn't go, and I don't ever, I mean, honestly, I don't have time to do other people. If you're not already a tax client of mine, I honestly, I don't even ask my clients for referrals because I'm so busy dealing with my own clients. But so we've done it a couple different ways. I've been, I've done that, but I do a lot of speaking and it's, it's so hard to get all your speaking like approved and stuff like that. Yeah. So I've kind of stepped out of that and I don't want to be like helping clients actually figure out what to invest in. We figure out the strategies like the asset allocations and, you know, the buckets, because I'm a big person on leverage and diversification. I mean, you know, everybody knows that you wouldn't put 100% of your money into AT&T or Coca-Cola <laughs> or Microsoft or any company, but just having all your stuff that's correlated to the same thing, that's our market correlation, is that diversification? Just because you own 20 mutual funds, they're still all being impacted by the same thing. So I'm really a big proponent of having buckets of everything, some insurance-based stuff, some, you know, um, fixed, you know, products, some real estate, some oil and gas, some, you know, obviously how much your bucket is, is how much you have in each one of those places. But like, like I said, a lot of things I am, I have strategic partners with, partnerships with. I love it. I love it. All right. Uh, Deborah, that was awesome. Uh, Diane, thank you so much for joining us, Deborah. If someone wants to get in contact with you, you know, what's the best way to do so? Well, you can always check out my website, charteraccounting.com. All the social places, I'm Deborah Daniel CPA. Um, I like to put a lot of content out there. I'm mostly talking about just money in general. Like, yes. I mean, um, I like to talk about this time of year. I'm kind of talking about, hey, it's time to get your money planned together because I don't like the word budget. It feels like 
diet to me. I'm a healthy eating plan, not a diet. I'm a money plan, not a budget. <laughs> healthy living, healthy living lifestyle, not a diet. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Well, I'll put that information in the show notes. And Deborah, we're going to have you back on again in the future uh, with some more updates. Thank you so I love much. To talk money. I'll do it any Thanks. day. I love it. Bye-bye. All opinions expressed by Rob Santos and Rory Henry on this website podcast interview are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Arrowroot Family Office LLC or their parent company or affiliates, and they have been previously disseminated on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed by anyone as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of their opinions. Past performance is not indicative of future results.